A big earthquake somewhere in Indonesia. President Johnson puts financial damper on business boom by asking Congress to suspend tax benefits for businessmen building new plants and buying new machinery. And that's the news at 10 from the WR Newsroom. Bruce Elliott reporting for Lester Smith. I'll be back again with another full 15 minutes of news at 11 o'clock. Stay tuned now for the Gene Shepherd Program. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Out in WPAI, New York. At Finest Supermarkets. Finest would like to spread the good word about their peanut butter. And here's the word, delicious. Everything that goes into Finest peanut butter is grade A all the way. They make peanut butter the way it should be made. Peanutty, smooth. One more way, you come first at finest. This is WORAM New York, one of the RKO General family of stations whose principles and practices assure you of responsible and informative broadcasting in the public interest. Correct Eastern Daylight Saving Time is now 15 minutes past 10 o'clock. You know... Hello, hello, Emma, am I on here? Hello, hello, there, it's starting to come through. There you go, hello. Uh, you know, there's, uh, I, I have to correct the wrong here. It's just got to be done. I don't think that here at, we at WOR, which is, of course, you know, a serious concerned radio station, and it's a family station, by God, or we'll shove it down your necks, it's a family station. Uh, I don't think that, that we have recognized Bruce Elliott as much as Bruce Elliott requires. Elliott has a certain old-world courtliness about him that is absolutely indistinguishable in spite of total and constant adversity and lack of recognition and even respect, you know. There's some snotty things said about him around the mail room, even today. But Bruce's description of what I do as the Gene Shepherd program I think, deserves some kind of commendation. Do I have a program? What is my program? What are the outlines of basic living that I'm about to expunge or, <laughs> you know? And um, this is all part of Bruce Elliott's courtliness. And we salute that tonight, Bruce. You're going to... It's all right, Bruce. You just stick with it. And by God, spats are coming back, Bruce. There's a lot of indications along Lexington Avenue. Right You know, I, I don't know whether you know this or not out there, but I think you should know that Bruce is the only man I've ever known who honestly looks over his glasses when he talks to you. You know, like Foxy Grandpa. I am what I am, and that's all the hell I am. Here's the, uh, would you please give me an echo chamber in there, Lawrence, uh, please? Yeah, come on now. You're an engineer. You know about that stuff. If you don't, I'll come in and I'll hang my ticket up again and go back in business. It's trouble. Because we have another $50,000 mystery sound for those of you out there who are fans of $50,000 mystery sounds. You ready in there? Let's try it here. Let's give it a shot. Very good. I'll hold it there now. All right, now, ladies and gentlemen, here is our $50,000 mystery sound. 
<laughs> All right. If you can identify that sound, you will be in line to hit the major J-A-C-K-P-O-T. And now, would you please give me a little ribble of music in there, Larry, please? A little ribble of music, please. Very good. Very good. And tonight, we here on this serious radio station once again salute man and his eternal quest for creativity. His eternal struggle to reproduce his life and times between the covers of a book, in marble, in silly putty, or whatever medium he works in. And tonight, in our culture corner, we salute Thomas P. Ramirez of Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. We're going to... First of all, it's not easy to live in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. I have been there twice. Takes you eight minutes to get into town and two and a half minutes to get out. They have a couple of big, fast Esso stations there. Thomas P. Ramirez, we salute you of Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. He was a defense witness yesterday at his trial in U.S. District Court. Seven individuals and four firms, including Thomas Ramirez, were charged with interstate shipment of allegedly obscene novels in Houston, Texas. Ramirez testified that his pen name is Tony Calvano, the author of such famous novels as Passion Carousel, Orgy Club, Swap Sect, and Shame Hunger, among others. Ramirez, who said he works as a schoolteacher, ditch digger, garbage man, and secretary to an Episcopalian bishop, testified that he did, and we quote here, I did the best job possible in the time that I was allotted by the publisher, he said. U.S. District Judge Joe Ingram asked him how much time he was allotted to write each full-length novel. Uh, ten days. And so tonight we salute Thomas P. Ramirez, fighting that eternal battle that the artist has always fought, an unthinking a Philistine public, once again as he sits there in the slam with thousands of plots revolving around in his head. We salute tonight the eternal creativity of man, represented by Thomas P. Ramirez, the, the famous author of that unforgettable novel, Orgy Club. <laughs> oh, blow that thing, man.
good. You like a little more of that juice, Harp, out there? <laughs> it's terrible how nobody identified the uh, mystery sound tonight. Well, of course, that's the trouble with people. Unobservant, slobbish, sitting out there with their sloping foreheads, cutting to the wind. Nothing to offer except this an occasional... Uh, oh, let's see. Uh, uh, how would you like another salute uh, to today's... Uh, to today's person. Would you like that? Uh, would you please bring me on another uh, that little uh, honk and ribble music, that hairy music there. Bring it out just a little bit. Very good. I feel like singing, gang. Bring it out big. Let's go. All together now, gang. Get your move. Got eyes of blue. I never cared for eyes of blue, but she's got eyes of blue. And that's my weakness now. Less and less. She's got a dimple cheeks. I never cared for dimple cheeks, but she's got a dimple cheeks. And that's my weakness now. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, me. Oh, me. Oh, my. Oh, I should be good. I could be good, but gee, oh, gee, oh, wow, wow, wow. She likes the villain coup. I never liked the villain coup, but she likes the villain coup. And that's my weakness now. All right, where's my horn here? All Say, Bobby Darren, holy smokes, you're going to be sick, boy, one day when I play the Copa in Griffith, Indiana. Now, would you please give me a little more of that hairy music? We must salute this lady here. There's one other lady that we've got to salute tonight. Little Harry. Very good. And tonight, uh, this uh, serious type radio station once again salutes another person who has said it for all of us. We are saluting Bernadette Smith, a 28-year-old mother of two who lives in Finden, England. She claims now that she can drink pint after pint after pint after pint after pint of beer in four seconds each. She is entering an international beer drinking contest to prove it. We quote her here. Beer drinking, beer drinking has made me happy, she said, and we continue to quote. I am much more jolly than a few years ago when I didn't drink. <laughs> Cha 
chero, cha cha cha, paparo, paparo, papapapara, bao, bao. Hey, that's enough. That's enough of that. That gets set the mood there. You know, it's not easy to follow the Republican convention. Tell you, talk about dog eggs. Boy, that's a bad scene in showbiz. And not only that, you know, our dog acts and dog acts. I mean, uh, there's such a thing as following arthritic spaniels. That's not good. And that reminds me, this is WOR, AM and FM, New York. Hit the whoopee button, Larry, please. Yes, sir, that's the money end of it. Miller highlight the bright, clear taste in Get them all, they're still gasping. I see. Miller highlight the champagne of bottled beer. Oh, look at their eyes There's only there. one champagne of bottled beer. We dedicate this Sparkling to this lady in England. Flavorful. It is say what kind of beer she gets guzzled Miller on. highlight. Brewed from a century-old recipe, Miller Highlight has a rich heritage and tradition. A bright, clear taste. Unequaled, unquestioned, unchanging. Available on tap, in cans, and in familiar crystal clear bottles. Miller High Life is always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Enjoy Miller High Life yourself. Miller High Life, the champagne of beer. Yes, Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. Listen, uh, somebody wrote me a note and says, Shepard, you know, there's large areas of your life you obviously don't talk about. That's right. Would you hit the commercial button again? <laughs> Try new mayo seven with that real mayonnaise taste. Seven calories per taste. Hey, what do you mean? It says here this one has to be sung. Kind of a cockamamie idea. Is it you mean John Gambling sings it? The heck is this? He's even got a fat voice. Oh, the new Mayo 7 has 7 calories per teaspoon, but has that genuine real, that real mayonnaise flavor. You only have to taste it to believe it all the way. Mayo 7's new secret formula lets you eat and scoff and enjoy all your favorite foods all the way down the line and get skinny. You stay slim without worrying about calories because Mayo 7 has only 7 calories per teaspoon. So savor the delicious flavor Mayo 7 brings out and go all the way with Mayo 7. Bring it up. Named after the famous hospital of the same name. Gee whiz. You mean to tell me they sold that for scale? They're out of their mind. Richard Burton couldn't have done that. Way to worn a living here. Ridiculous. Uh, you know, speaking of that lady with the beer there. And uh, that reminded me of something. I read that. I read that piece. Uh, before we uh, begin this story, will all of you raise your hand out there who are squeamish? I mean, who have what they used to call uh, a weak stomach? Anybody got a weak stomach out there? Is that Bronx Tomato listening? If that Bronx Tomato is listening, would, would that Bronx Tomato please get on the phone here and tell me whether or not she's got a weak stomach? You know, how many, how many, how many of you have though have have seen a commercial? Speaking of weak stomachs, that you want to reach out and you just want to hit the damn television set. You want to hit it, you know? No, I mean, you just want to hit it. You know, if you hit it, you'd only get your hand cut and the gas would blow up, you know, and you get your hand in the high the high voltage and you probably blow your arm right off, you know, all that. You just want to hit it. You know, the one that I can't stand. I really get bugged. Did you, have have you seen? 
a nastier lady than the one that comes up. I'll tell you what's wrong. I'll tell you. You've got bad breath. Bad breath. What a chick. Can you imagine sitting at a at a at a little uh, a, a little uh, intimate what with that you know. And, and, you know, you're trying to get romantic, and she says, I'll tell you what's the matter with you. You know why you didn't get invited, huh? You stink. <sighs> and uh, the glass is the whole bit. You want to reach out and kick her, you know? And she keeps ju ducking away, you know? I think they know that. H have you seen that lady? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, you know, we're all victims, let's face it. It just depends on where, where you know... Where it stops and where it begins. You know, speaking of, uh, uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to bother anybody out there. Anybody out there with the squeamish? Raise your hand. I mean, uh, or forever hold your peace. Don't write me any letters then afterwards. You know, I'm just warning you that uh, listening to the, the that little story. You know, reading that thing about the lady the first time she drank the beer. Oh boy. Does that remind me of a story? Do you remember when you were pure as the driven snow? Any of you out there? It's hard to remember, isn't it? I mean, do you remember when you were just like a little piece of blotting paper that nobody had spilled nothing on? Huh? I mean, it must have been a time, you know. There really was. And, and I, I remember the time. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to tell you the story. It's, it's a nasty, rotten story. About the first time, not the first time that I drank a beer. Because the first time I drank a beer, I just went, ugh. You know, I didn't drink anymore. That was the end of that. But boy, I'll tell you, one of the nights, any of you remember actually getting so sick that you can understand that night, you can understand totally the whole concept of suicide? I mean, you know, have you ever, have you ever had, had a thing happen to you like that? I mean, so rotten, crummy, oh, just so fantastically sick that you, you just, you, you know, you sweat and you, you just know that it's all over. And not only that, you hope that it's going to end soon, quick, you know, before it, uh, before you blow your stack. Well, I, I, uh, I had a, a fantastic event happen to me. I know I've never told this story in the air, never. But uh, I, this was, uh, this is not really an Army story, although it is related to the Army. And it happened within a good, I'd say a good strong spit from here. I mean, with the wind, that is, of course, with a chew of tobacco, uh, which gives you a little more distance, you know, you get a little more arch on it that way. Uh, that's different from bubble gum, which is kind of thin and weak. But, I mean, you get a little mail pouch stuck back there in the bicuspid, and you let her go. You can get 40, 50 feet at a crack. I've seen it happen. I saw a guy one time. <laughs> uh, see, I told you it was going to be disgusting. You know, I was, well, face the facts that a lot of life is. And, and some of the guttiest stuff is disgusting. Now, uh, why is it that the same people who go and applaud that completely slobbish scene in Tom Jones will write me an angry letter? I, mean, I guess because that was in color, huh? And you could see, you know, you could see the gravy dripping down and, ah, you know, ooh, uggish. Talk about a sicking. <laughs> but but I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the Army. You got the scene now. Now it's been a long time, you see. I'm in the Army for, oh, you know, it seems like seven or eight eons, something like that. So long that the Army is deeply ingrained in me. You don't even know, you know, it's a, no, no, there's no other way to live. It's just, you're just in the Army, that's all. You know, some people consider themselves human beings. Other people consider themselves women. Well, I was in the Army. You know, you, you, that's it. You just, it's part of your life. You don't think really in terms of not being in the Army. And one day, out of the blue, like some fantastic lightning bolt, like some giant fist, 
enormous male fish came out and sent about 50 of us back to the separation center to be kicked out. Unbelievable moment, you know? And we didn't believe it, actually. Being in the Army, we didn't really believe it. We figured, well, you know, they'd, they'd get us in this room. There was all kinds of rumors about what they were going to do. They would get us in this room, and there would be a sergeant, and he would step on a button, and the floor would open up, and we would be in Okinawa, fighting hand-to-hand. Or, uh, you know, all kinds of rumors. that, that they, They'd get us there, and they would make us sign papers to get out, and then the sergeant would go, hey, 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 now I've got you. And he would whip away the paper that you signed. And underneath it, in carbon copy, was the thing that said you signed up for 400 years to be a PFC for the rest of your life, you know. And, and you know, everybody was very cynical about it until they actually shipped us. We had been hearing about these places. You read about them in Yank magazine. It's a great magazine. Talk about the first truly obscene magazine. That was Yank. And, uh... Yeah, one of my favorite cartoons. I'll never forget that great cartoon of Sad Sack. Uh, th- these little cartoons rippled throughout the whole army, throughout the whole world, actually. Guys were in Iceland. Other guys were in India. Other guys were in Burma. And there were guys living in Africa and guys in India, all laughing at one cartoon at one moment in time. And that was a cartoon that Sad Sack had. You remember Sad Sack? Great cartoon. Well, he is nothing like now, today, I can tell you. Uh, to give you an idea, Sad Sack, in that particular cartoon, he was asleep in his bunk. You remember that one? He's asleep. Well, I guess you wouldn't. They, that one did not appear in the Daily News. He was asleep in his bunk, see? <laughs> and on, at, at the end was his, his bunk tag, his little bed tag, and it said S. Sack. And uh, that's his name, you know, Sad Sack. I mean, he invented, you know, this guy, the, the, the cartoonist, most people use the term Sad Sack, but he invented that phrase. That's a phrase that he gave to the world, Sad Sack. Sack was his last name. And you know why they use Sack? Because in the Army, uh, whenever, whenever, uh, when, whenever the PFC or the Yardbird was completely rejected, he went to the Sack and he slept there. You just slept your way around the clock. Sometimes guys would sleep for a whole week. I knew guys that got three-day passes, and they would immediately go to bed. And three days later, they would get staggering up, and they'd blow the whistles, and they'd stand reverently or something, and that would be it. But that's the way they slept. And Sad Sack was a a name that was invented by this guy in the Army, this cartoonist. I'll bet you can't tell me his name. All right, come on. Don't worry about that, honey. What was the name of the guy that, that drew Sad Sack? You know, there aren't many people who have given phrases to our language. Among them, the cartoonist who created uh, Popeye. He gave such words as Jeep to the language. You know, the Jeep uh, that we know today was named after a cartoon character, Jeep. He also gave uh, Goon was a phrase that he came up with, which is used constantly today. Uh, by the way, I am also, and I, and I must say that, that I'm delighted to, to, uh, to point out that I am also the perpetrator of a phrase which has become part of the language. Uh, and I, I keep seeing it everywhere I look. I see it on marquees once in a while. I see it in magazines. And how many of you remember that phrase? Do you know what phrase that, that I'm given credit for creating on the air, Larry? In fact, if any of you have got a copy of the American Dictionary of Slang and Usage, you will find my name listed under that phrase as creating it. In fact, I am in that same dictionary for three phrases which I created. I'll give you a clue. One of them is creeping meatballism. 
which uh, <laughs> which uh, came out of the show here a couple of years ago. But nevertheless, this this uh, private sack. Uh, everybody all over the country is laughing. All over the world, they're laughing at this same thing. And and here was the cartoon. It shows Sad Sack. So he's in bed. And he's asleep. And there's absolutely no expression on his face. And then all of a sudden, you see a look of kind of a peculiar look of a startle. He's startled. He's still asleep. You can see he's dreaming something. He's startled. And then you see a gigantic grin spread all over his face. And then again, you see... In the in the fourth the fourth uh, panel, he is waking up, and he's looking real scared. And you see him now; he's quickly getting dressed, and he's putting on his shoes and his pants, and he's running out. And you see, in the last the last panel, he is going into this place that says on on the top of it, it says infirmary, and over it is a green light hanging. You don't get it, huh? Okay, that's good. I'm glad to see that there are still some people with us tonight who are as pure as the driven snow. That's my litmus test. When people look at me and say, huh? Then I know that I'm, I'm you know, that I better tell little stories like Uncle Remus and tell a few, you know, little things like uh, Raggedy Ann, Raggedy Andy, little stuff like that. But I, you want to you hear about this terrible moment. All right. I, I, we're all sitting there one day, all the guys at Company K. We've been together so long have you ever been with people that you have absolutely no, nothing in common with, but you've been together so long and so intimately that you've gone through about 45 phases of wanting to kill them and then uh, being bland towards them and then digging them and then five minutes later you're walking down the company street and you a, a plan formulates in your mind about if I could get a hold of a grenade and just before supper when they're all in there getting dressed if I stood here by the latrine and I lobbed it in the window by the left, I could get the whole damn company. Kill them all. I could even get the first sergeant. The whole bunch. Now, well, we'd gone through about 10,000 phases like that. And now we know each other's problems and each other's world and each other's attitudes. So much so that uh, I could write the language and the continuity of each guy's expressions. Any, given any situation, I knew exactly what he would say. Uh, if, say, a hurricane hit Company K, I know I could tell you what Edwards would say the first two and a half minutes. I knew what Gasser would say. I knew what Zinsmeister would say. I knew what I would say. We had one guy. <laughs> Did I ever tell you about that one guy named Abernathy? Did I ever tell you about Abernathy who was bald? Uh, Abernathy was perpetually late. And every morning, Abernathy, he looked a little bit like, uh, oh, a little like Curly. In uh, the Three Stooges, yeah, and he, he, he was bald though, absolutely bald, and he was from Chicago. And every morning, Abernathy would fall out for Reveille about two minutes late, and we'd all be standing there in the darkness in the frozen tundra, and the first sergeant would be calling out the names, and then you'd hear behind us, you'd hear, you'd hear running across the tundra, and you would hear the flapping of his raincoat, flap 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 flap, and he would stop. Somehow, that bugged everybody. He did it all the time, no matter what the formation was. No matter what the situation was, we'd all be standing there and you'd hear... was Abernathy. Now, that's about all I remember out of Abernathy, except for one thing that Abernathy did. And this is a clue to his character. 
He got mailed to him, no matter where we were, air mail, special delivery, the Chicago Tribune. Now, I, I always have said that a guy can't be completely nutty uh, and, and still live in the 20th century and get along, you know, and not pull straws out of his hair. But I doubt very much whether a guy, uh, he would get this mailed to him. Now, anybody who totally believed in Colonel Robert McCormick is somebody to reckon with. <laughs> and it was Abernathy. Always a little late. Always a little late. Constantly bugging everybody. On the other hand, Edwards. Now, Edwards was totally the opposite. If the, if the uh, formation was going to be at 5.15, Edwards was standing by himself out there in the darkness at five minutes past five. A constant reminder to the rest of us that we were inadequate. And so between Edwards and Abernathy, we had the Alpha and the Omega. And we would like each one of those guys at certain times and hate them at other times, depending on... But they were constant. They remained totally constant. Just as Gasser remained constant. He was constantly obscene. Gasser spoke only in obscenities. But not in the dirty, rotten Ralph Ginsburg concept. I mean, just, you know, <laughs> he just, he worked in four-letter words, like other guys work in clay and marble. He just, and, and it meant nothing, nothing at all, because he never had a dirty thought in his mind. As a matter of fact, I'll never forget the time Gasser had a date in Nutley. Yeah, Nutley, New Jersey, and he made a lot of remarks about that. It was terrible, you know, when he first got that, you know, it was an awful scene when he got that. And then he came back about about four hours later, and he was uh, white-faced, and it turns out that he made one of his usual suggestions, and the girl said, okay. And he was, he was horrified. He says, what kind of a person do you think I am? And he had to walk all the way home because she had the car. And, I, and so that was gas. <laughs> now, now, now you got the scene. We were all living together in, in, in total intimacy. And then one day they announced on the, on the bulletin board, came out, it says all men, the following men, are now eligible for separation. Well, all of us have been eligible, really eligible for separation since about the third or fourth year of the Boer War. Uh, I mean, if you really want to talk about eligibility, I was eligible before I got in, actually. But uh, there, there, were, there were our names on the board. We couldn't believe it. We went back and sat down. And Edwards, of course, uh, playing it cool. Edwards says, well, uh, I'll get my stuff packed. I'll be ready. And he started to pack. Abernathy was asleep. So he missed it, you know. I think he's still in the Army. I think he missed that formation. He missed the one, the, the one formation he shouldn't have missed, you know, when we all marched off towards the separation center. But then we finally arrived. We couldn't believe it. They took us in a train, and they let us off at Fort Dix. And there we were, Fort Dix. I'd never been in Fort Dix, New Jersey. And it was cold that day we got there. It was in December, as a matter of fact. The wind was blowing, great gusts of snow. And I could see all around me. I wonder how many of you know that they had working over there at that time they had various POWs there were various German like SS men were, were uh, on KP and there they were standing behind there giving us our SOS these guys and, and I saw an incident yeah I saw a guy walk through the, the mess hall line and he was right ahead of me and this was a grizzled you know a real grizzled character walking along and he's sort of scuffling you could see he'd been in the army probably five years and he'd been you know ever and he walks along, and, and we came to the mess, the chow line. And here we were all standing in line. We were working our way up. And it was like at the Horn and Hard Art, you know, where the guy said, what do you want, what do you want? And we walk along, and here's this guy standing behind us, tall, about six feet tall. 
six feet four or something like that, blonde. The, the, the very picture of the Hitler Jugend, you know, the whole thing. But remember, we were also Jugends, too, you know. We were all about, uh, you know, maybe 19, 20, uh, maybe 17, some guys. Some guys were 18. And this guy ahead of me, you could see he was much older. He was m much older than the rest of us. He's walking along. I never, nobody talked much to him because we were in a separation center. Nobody knew anybody. Just our little knot of guys going through together. And up, all of a sudden, ahead of us, he's got his big tray. They've got these big separation trays, you know, with the with the little partitions, and the guys are throwing the food in there. He takes his tray. The only time I've ever seen it done, this this uh, this POW gives him a big scoop of SOS. He lays it down there, and he's going about his business. And all of a sudden, the guy says, "Hey, hey, you, hey, you, Achtung!" And the guy turns around, and with that, this yardbird takes his tray and right in the face. Just like that, pow! It was kind of a dead silence, and the the uh, uh, the POW sort of backed away. You know, he's got mashed potatoes falling down all over him. You can see gravy all over his blonde crew cut. He sort of backs away, and looks with those cold blue eyes, and the yard bird that hit him with the with the thing. He says, turns around, says, "Master race, oh master race." Yeah. And we went on through the through the chow line. It was a very strange moment. You don't hear about little stories like this. And I, I I went drifting out into the into the company area. Then it was cold and bitter. Little realizing that I was about to have one of the great uh, uh, educational moments of my life. I hear another hoopla going on. It's not, you see, the entire place was filled with a, with a with a very st uh, special kind of guy that had just come back. Uh, there were about ten elements of the 82nd Airborne that had just returned. And boy, of which there, there was no witcher, I can tell you that. And there were about, about 6,000 guys who had been in the, the 101st Airborne and all that, you know. They, and there was, there was a strange atmosphere in the camp, very peculiar. And now these guys were back. Everybody was back home. And they began to resent all of their life that had gone. It wasn't that guys were, you know, if, if uh, I always think movie writers write too much from hindsight and not enough from having, you know, seen it. Uh, the guys weren't bugged at things that had happened in the Army. All of a sudden, it became very obvious they had lost four years of their life. Just gone, you know, clipped right out. And and uh, I remember looking through, uh, they had they had uh, like uh, little chicken wire fences. We're all looking out. We could see all these guys walking around, civilian types. And, oh, they're very official. They're on top of it. Obviously, they've been there. It was kind of a gee whiz, you know. Wow. Well, you know, and, and the radios are playing, and you could hear all kinds of guys that had made it while you were gone, and all kinds of people were bugged. And so there was a there was a kind of a hoopla just about ten minutes after the mess incident. Is this boring you, by the way? It's a curious story. There about ten minutes after the mess incident, I walked out into the darkness, and I was with Zinsmeister. Wind is blowing, uh, Zinsmeister and Gasser. And I hear a lot of yelling, and I see that, the, that about four GIs, have got two POWs trapped on the roof of a barracks. And it's snowing. Oh, terrible icy snow. And these guys are throwing ice up at them. And these these two POWs are sitting up there. There were two, uh, as a matter of fact, they happened to be Africa Corps. They were both sitting up there, kind of crouching down. You could see. They, they didn't know which way to turn. These guys were throwing. And a, and a couple of MPs are, come on, you guys, break it up, break it up. And we went wandering back to the barracks. And so now we're sitting there. What are we going to do? Everybody's got this sense of, 
of, uh, at loose ends. You know, there's, there's no first sergeant anymore. Our lieutenant was shipped away, and our captain's come. The whole thing is all falling apart. It's just beginning to disappear before your eyes. And they had a, they had an airfield over Dick's, you know. And while we're sitting there, yeah, a, a, a tremendous flight of B-17s came in. These are big super fortresses, you know. They just... You could just hear them one after the other. They've just come in from overseas. A squadron is returning. And, and we watch them circle the field and lay, and lay them down one after the other out there in the darkness. And you see the lights blinking. And you can hear the POWs. That was the eerie thing about it. You could hear all these German voices all around out in the darkness. These guys were cleaning the streets and were sweeping up the, the sidewalks. And you could hear them talking. You could hear these Germans. We're all sitting there. Then once in a while, another airplane would come in. And you, the walls would jiggle. I remember, I remember sitting there. We, we sat there for four whole days with absolutely nothing to do. And these planes kept roaring in. And in came a glider group, a glider uh, division that had gotten badly cut up, by the way, at the, in the jump over the Rhine. You can... It was the 17th glider. Yeah, that's right. They came roaring in. And one of the planes crash-landed. You came in and... Blow, and the smoke flying up. We just looked on. Nobody said anything. And all the while, you could hear these German voices all around. And Yank Magazine all of a sudden became very... Uh, very had no, no, no relationship to our world anymore. You could see guys once in a while. You'd see a guy walking around carrying something like the Saturday Evening Post or the, the Daily News... That we're hearing newscasts on. Guys are saying, yep, it looks like the Yankees once again are going to. You know, it's all suddenly all drifting back in. And a peculiar resentment began to build up. Very strange kind of a disorientation. Must be vaguely like, uh, oh, like some kind of a reaction to an extended hospital stay when the, you've come through a peculiar kind of nightmarish, strange involuted, delirious time, and suddenly you're back in it. You can't quite make uh, contact, and you kind of resent people who were well, you know. You're bugged that all these guys were going to ball games and everything. Here you are, you're... And so everybody's kind of milling around. And Zinsmeister says, let's get on at a PX. I was about to have an experience, which I will never forget. And so me and Gasser and Edwards and Zinsmeister go down to the PX. Now, the PX in the separation center was very different from any other PX I ever saw. Oh, they had wild stuff like, you could buy a checkered Tattersall vests. <laughs> you know, made out of, uh, made out of Kleenex. Uh, oh, they had wild stuff. Some of the stuff I wish I had bought now. I'd, I'd love to have had, I, I wish now that I had a pillow. This big red, white, and blue pillow. And it said, souvenir of Fort Dick separation center. <laughs> love to have that, you know, I'd like to have that hanging in my office, you know, with the gold fringe all over the thing. So, we're in there hanging around. We have our Milky Ways. And we drank a couple of bottles of that G.I. beer, which uh, really, I mean, uh, a G.I. beer made water look angry. And uh, so we had a couple, of, a couple of bottles of G.I. beer, and on top of that, I had a milkshake. You know, you, very, you, know, you know that moment, you know, you go through those, those periods when you just... Uh, you're at loose ends. It's a great phrase, loose ends, you know. And so I had a big milkshake, and I had a couple of bottles of beer. And then I went up and had a cheeseburger. Ah, a big cheeseburger. And I had a Milky Way. And then I fooled around a little bit. And Zinsmeister's eating stuff. And Gas is eating stuff. Somebody says, let's, uh, 
How about uh, let's get some baby roost to take back? So okay, we went over and bought a couple of baby roost fires and stuck them in our pocket, and I ate half of one and and uh, went back up again, and I had the tuna sandwich and it's a full garage. You got nothing to do. You're just eating and scoffing away, and and all the while the German POWs are walking around making the scene. By the way, with the chicks, something uh, something about the Africa Corps really really. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> really got to the chicks. We were just GIs, you know. They were exotic. See? And that bugged a couple of guys. They said, hey, Heine, hey, hey. Get out away from that chick, Heine. And the girl gives him a dirty look. And they, they, uh, the German didn't know what he was saying. He just sort of backed away. He could tell that look of the angry mortar platoon PFC. You know, there's a, there's a certain look. And so uh, it just went on and on. And then Zinsmeister, who was who was in our little group, he was the man in our group. He was grown up. He had a wife and all that stuff, you know, all the rest of us. We were just, you know, we were always asking him about Zinsmeister. How does it feel to be married? I mean, you know, uh, and he'd say, well, you know. So no, well, what does it, how does it feel? He was the guy that experienced everything. We were just living along. And so Zinsmeister walks up and to the counter and he says, uh, I'll have... Uh, how about uh, half a dozen of those white owls? And he, he got half a dozen big, fat, you know, the big 7th Avenue type cigar. You know, the kind that comes in a shoulder holster and it's got, it's got climbing irons on it and all that. You know, you, you, you know the kind, the big, fat, the, you know, the obscene-looking cigar, you know, really tough-looking cigar, the big band on it and that big owl looking out. And so uh, since Meister comes back and he's got a handful of them, he must have had seven or eight of these cigars, and he passed them around. He says, here, have, like, have, a, have a cigar, Gas. The guy says, no, I never smoke. And so he says, here, Chef, have a cigar. So I says, yeah, I'll take a cigar. I never smoked in my life, you know. Maybe two cigarettes all of my life I'd ever smoked. But we're getting out. It's all celebration, the whole bit. And, uh, you know, you're always drawn to these things. And so Zins Meister, he lights up, you know, looks very content. <sighs> You know that thing where they roll them up, you know, a little bit, and they roll it around their mouth, and they take the match, and they hold it about a half inch below the cigar, and it flares up, and that purple smoke drifts around. And so I said, well, uh, okay. And I says, uh, here, got any matches, uh, Carl? And he says, yeah. And so he gives me, I couldn't light it. You know, I'm, I'm puffing away at this thing. It won't light. He says, well, bite the end off. Bite it off. I said, oh, you got to bite the end off. Oh, I see. So, so he says, here, I'll show you. And so he shows me how he bit the end of so I go, you know, I bite the end off this thing and, oh boy, this comes through, you know, oh boy, it clears your sinuses and everything, just like that, and your eyeballs start to water, and, and all the, all the GIs, there must have been 500 GIs all sitting around, living the life of Riley, and they're all smoking cigars, and they've got the ruptured ducks, and the whole bitch, you know, they're all on their way out, and the Germans are walking around, and once in a while, they got to, hey, Heine, beer, Hein the beer. Wow, Ein Beer Schnell. Mach Schnell, Heine. <laughs> that was a typical GI phrase. Mach Schnell, Heine, Heine Beer. And then he'd come over and the guy, uh, the poor the poor uh, waiter uh, who would have probably been a first lieutenant in some uh, fantastic outfit, he would come over and he'd lay the beer down and the guy would put his foot out, uh, you know, get, get him right in the right in the tailbone. Say, Mach Schnell, Heine, whoop. And he'd kick him. He'd say, I had a beer. I had beer all around here, Heine. Well, I started to puff that cigar. Well, I'm, I must have puffed about three solid puffs when I suddenly became aware that the PX was rising into the air. Just like that, it was beginning to slowly go up in the air. 
and and I had this choking. I had to get out. I absolutely had to get out into the fresh air, or I'd go. I, have you ever had that scene where you've just got to get out? You've got to get out. All of a sudden, the sweat is popping out, and I felt this thing coming up from underneath me. It was like four years of gut sickness was coming up all at once. The whole thing, the excitement of getting out, the whole business. And I ran to the front door, you know. There I am. I'm just, the crowd of GIs is coming in. There's a crowd going out. The Heinies are all over. I run to the front door, and I'll tell you, I laid stuff all over the company area. I'm telling you stuff that I, well, I, uh, frankly, I, uh, there was a little piece of birthday cake that came up from my seventh birthday. It was fantastic. Had a little, you know, a little egg on it. It's a seven. Uh, holy smokes. I'll tell you, I, I and, and, and that night I went back to the sack and I laid there and the entire camp revolved around me with the B-17s coming in and the Heinies walking around and I could hear the GIs, Heine, Mark, Schnell, Heine. Then I'd hear the sound of a fist crunching. An 82nd Airborne was hitting his corporal in the mouth. Oh, what a night. Speaking of, uh, of getting on the stick here, I better get on. We've got Rover 2000 with us, friends. What can I tell you about it except that it's a great car? And if you're planning to make the pop... For a real automobile, send us a car at the Rover here, and we'll send you pictures. <laughs> and uh, speaking of pictures, think how magnificent tomorrow you'll look wearing a four-minute pucker, courtesy of Regal Crown and their superb sour grapes. And uh, anybody who stayed through my show tonight knows about sour grapes. And uh, oh, by the way, listen, call the limelight right now at Oregon 52212 if you want reservations for this Saturday. Wow. Uh,